Welcome to A Train Sports Talk Podcast. I'm your conductor, Anthony Smith. And in today's show, I will bring you up to speed on Major League Baseball. I'm going to also give you some Negro League Baseball history. Also, do a recap of the NFL and what in the world is going on with the NFC East with a combined record of 3, 12, and 1. Well, we're going to find out what the big issue is and how it can be fixed for each team. So stay tuned to the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. That show is coming up next, so enjoy the ride. So welcome into another edition of A-Train Sports Talk podcast. And uh, as you heard at the onset, most likely I'm going to give you some baseball updates. Also talk a little bit of Negro League baseball history since we're in the postseason of baseball. But before I get started with that, I want to give you a preview of the Las Vegas Aces and the Seattle Storm. Game time, 6 p.m. Yes, that is the WNBA. Yes, I did forget about them. Anyway, history beckons to the Seattle Storm, who look to become only the third four-time WNBA champions and complete a sweep of the Las Vegas Aces on Tuesday night in Game 3 of the Finals. Storm are looking to join the Houston Comets and the Minnesota Lynx, the team they swept aside in the semifinals as the only four-time champions in league history. After a star turn by Brianna Stewart powered a Game 1 victory, it was a more collaborative effort in Sunday's 104-91 victory in Game 2. Stewart again took center stage with 22 points, but Alicia Clark added 21 as all five starters finished in double figures. Sue Bird, a member of the other three title-winning teams, followed up her record-setting 16-assist effort in Game 1 with another 10 as Seattle set a WNBA Finals record with 33 helpers on 40 field goals as they shot 57.1% overall in 12 of 26 from three-point range. Having high assist isn't abnormal for us. 33 is amazing. Goes to show the unselfishness of everyone on the floor and the confidence we have in one another, Clark told the Associated Press. Pass up a good shot to get a great shot. When you do those things, 33 assists happen. Wow. Bird, who is two weeks shy of 40, refuses to get complacent on the cusp of another title. Noting post game via video conference, game three is not going to be easy. Just have to stay in the moment, possession by possession. They're good. It's tough. These are battles. The score doesn't indicate it, and I'm sure it will be the same in game three. As history calls to the storm, it also looks to be daunting for the aces. No team has ever overcome a 2-0 series deficit in the WNBA playoffs, and specific to this series, the absence of injured two-time sixth woman of the year, De'Erica Hamby, has loomed large. Regular season MVP Ajay Wilson has done her part in the two games, totaling 39 points. Fellow starters Angel McCautry and Kayla McBride also have been consistent on the offensive end. But Coach Bill Lambeer needs his shorthanded bench to deliver to have any chance of extending this series. Everybody knew coming in they had a full contingent and were going to be quality players, Lambeer told the Las Vegas Review-Journal. We miss De'Erica Hamby very badly. They have their full squad, and they can keep fresher legs than we can. At the same time, we still have enough to get the job done. Emma Cannon did fill some of that void Sunday with 17 points on 8 of 10 shooting, but fellow super sub Jackie Young's postseason shooting woes continue. She was held to 4 points on 2 of 7 shooting, and has averaged 7.3 points in 32.1% shooting in seven playoff games. 
well off her season average of 11 points on 49.2% shooting. Lambert also griped about the officiating from Game 2 during which the Aces attempted only 5 free throws compared to the Storm's 15, despite outscoring Seattle 46-44 in the paint. Should the Aces win and extend this series, Game 4 will be played Thursday night. So there you have an update on WNBA and what's going on to get you ready for tonight's game between the Las Vegas Aces and the Seattle Storm. Both teams checking in with an 18-4 record. Including one time against this team. Acuna squares one up and sends one a deep right center field. Back and well gone. Another leadoff home run for Ronald Acuna Jr. And an explosive Atlanta start here in game one. Another one here, guys. Just a fastball. A little bit up. Not a terrible pitch, I think, if you ask. Swing it away. Deep center field. Back towards the wall. Sierra at the track. It's gone! Travis Darnold delivers. And the Braves have taken the lead in the seventh. You run. Go ahead, Bob. Make a little cutter out over the plate. Or no full extension. He thinks it right away. And I love the Finch's reaction. They're jumping out over the fence, Acuna especially. And James Hoyt, the former Cleveland Indian, who joined the Marlins early in the season, is on to face Swanson, who swings and hammers one towards left center field. Back towards the wall, and it's gone. Dancy Swanson follows it up. And a big seventh inning for the Braves continues. This Swanson homer gives him a six-run seventh. And those were highlights from today's game between the Atlanta Braves and the Miami Marlins. So it's another busy day in the Major League Baseball playoffs with all four division series in action. Two series openers in the National League and two game and two game twos in the American League. Here are the stars turning points and takeaways from each of Tuesday's games as they conclude. Atlanta Braves 9, Miami Marlins 5. What it means, it was an action-packed game one between the Braves and the Marlins, but Atlanta rose six runs in the seventh inning to grab the series opener 9-5. to five. Ronald Acuna Jr. homered to lead off the bottom of the first, then was hit by a Sandy Alcantara pitch in his next at-bat to heat things up in the early innings. Remember, there is history between the Marlins and Acuna. The Marlins put up four runs on Atlanta ace Max Freed, but things unraveled after the teams got into their respective bullpens. The Braves hold a massive advantage in that area and have a much more dynamic offensive attack. The margin is thin in this series for the Marlins, but they've been as resilient as a team can be. That trait will be put to test in Game 2 when Pablo Lopez will try to even things for the, for Miami against Atlanta's Ian Anderson. For the Braves, that could get they could get a subpar outing from Freed and still win a playoff game going away tells you all you need to know about how well rounded this Atlanta squad is. Next up, Game 2 will be Wednesday at 2.08 p.m. Eastern. More Tuesdays games at the ALDS Game 2. A's Astros. Also ALDS Game 2, Rays versus Yankees. That game will be at 8.10 p.m. And the National League Division Series Game 1, Padres Dodgers. That game will be at 9.38 p.m. Eastern. So if you are on the in the central time zone, just push that back an hour. Game time, 710. Game time, 938. I mean, 838. So back to this 
Atlanta. So there were blowouts, comebacks, and chaos. The six types of games in the Major League Baseball playoffs. The writer Kurt Vonnegut once took to a chalkboard to lecture on the simple shapes that most popular stories follow. In his first example, Man in the Hole, a protagonist starts around the middle of the y-axis. As time passes on the x-axis, he falls into a terrible hole. A line curves down to near the bottom, but then he gets out of it and ends up better off than he started. People love that story, Vonnegut said. They never get sick of it. Vonnegut didn't care or know squat about sports, except when he was writing cranky letters to the local newspaper about how Little League Baseball has wrecked the American Supper Hour. The story shapes he drew in that lecture, though, could be seen as a precursor to a now common visual in professional sports. The win expectancy graph with its y-axis measuring a team's fortunes across the x-axis of time. In a 2005 essay, Vonnegut ultimately suggested five story shapes, but postseason baseball shows us there are actually six. To be fair, one of them is so boring most people will turn it off early, so maybe it's true that there are five good story shapes. Why did we specify postseason baseball? Because postseason baseball is the one time in the season when the majority of a game's viewers don't have a rooting loyalty. <clears throat> For a Padres fan watching the Padres game, there is no narrative shape, but only the pressing and immediate need to win every moment. That Padres fans graph is more like a cardiogram and the tension comes from whether there will be a next heartbeat. But for the neutral fan, there's narrative which depends on build-up and payoff on change and reflection. The wild card round of this year's postseason provided examples of all six game types. <clears throat> but then, any collection of a dozen or so postseason games likely will since there are only six basic games to pick from, there are the six win expectancy graphs you will see in the postseason. And in fact, see over and over and over again. All tables come from fan graphs. First, the fall. Things are going fine, largely uneventful, peaceful, until one team commits a great sin most often by allowing a crooked run inning. Sometimes the titular fault happens almost immediately, as in the book of Genesis or the Padres Cardinals game one. Above, sometimes it happens mid-story as in the case of Sisyphus or the Padres Cardinals game three. The equilibrium is broken, and the team that's behind is thrust into an increasingly desperate push to undo the stain. It might take partial steps toward redemption, a run, perhaps a rally, almost certainly. But try as it might, it never erases the debt. Indeed, the gulf between the losing team and the success often grows over the course of its attempts as in the late innings of last year's World Series Game 7. The Bloody Sock Game fits this shape. This is probably the most common baseball game story since scoring in baseball is rare enough that most leads hold. Have you ever noticed that a team that's leading by three runs in the ninth inning brings in its very best reliever to protect the lead, but a team that's trailing by three runs brings in its fifth best reliever, even though the game is theoretically just as close, three runs for both teams. That's because inertia is the default expectation in baseball. The trading team doesn't use its relief ace because it knows it probably won't come back 
so allowing more runs probably won't change the outcome. The fault is basically the one bad inning model of baseball slash life. The moral of this story is how unforgiving baseball life is. Secondly, gradually and then suddenly. In this graph, the equilibrium between the teams holds the game taut for a long time, but equilibrium can't hold in any system forever. And entropy, the gradual decline of all things into disorder ensures eventual chaos. As the game progresses, score might not change, but the swings in win expectancy get larger. A one out double in the eighth inning might cause a bigger spike in loading the bases in the first inning would have. And simply failing to score in a half inning, especially after runners have reached, can create a sharp spike in the other team's chances. When finally the game is determined, the relatively steady line jags all the way to one of the extremes, death essentially. A 13-inning, 1-0 game, as the Braves and Reds played last week, is the purest, smoothest example of this story's shape, which resembles Ernest Hemingway's description of going bankrupt. Gradually and then suddenly, but anytime the teams stay within a run, maybe two runs, through the bulk of nine innings, sending things into a sudden death atmosphere, you see the basic shape, the Trojan War. Ten years of siege, ending almost overnight with a single wooden horse. Fits this shape. So, does the Zach Britton less wild card game below in 2016, mostly smooth, increasingly jagged, and finally over the cliff? The moral of this story is that most of a life's energy is spent simply surviving, and that it's a demand that gets harder and harder to meet. Number three, the countdown clock. A baseball game was ordained to go nine innings, 27 outs, not one out longer or not one out shorter. For the teams that's ahead, then the late stages of a game are a matter of surviving one tentative out at a time fending off a series of external threats while laboring through internal attrition. In the game above, the A's had a lead and they held the lead. That makes its shape similar, especially from the White Sox perspective, to the fall. But while the lead in the fall usually looks relatively sturdy, the lead in a countdown clock game is extremely fragile. The A's fended off significant rallies in each of the final three innings and ultimately had to call in a closer who had thrown 49 pitches just 24 hours earlier. If the A's had to get 28 outs rather than 27, they would quite possibly have lost. The final game of the 2016 National League Division Series fit this shape beautifully. The Dodgers took a lead, brought in their ace closer, Kenley Jansen, to attempt a three-inning save, but ultimately had to turn to Clayton Kershaw on no rest to get the final two outs. The moral of this story is that the difference between winning and losing, between success and failure, often comes down to arbitrarily defined boundaries. So what I'm going to do right here, since this first segment was kind of long with it, I am going to take a break and slip in a word from my sponsors. Stay tuned to A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Hey, this train is just not building up steam. I'll be back after this message. Today's show is sponsored by the new BK's African Boutique, where you can get your custom t-shirts between $10 and $1 and masks starting at $5. Check her out. Email bjkonjira that's b-j-k-o-n-g-i-r-a at gmail.com or call 816-694-4111. 
1-1. Ask for Brick. Welcome back to A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. And now I'm going to shift into some Negro League baseball history. And I am going to stick with the Atlanta theme. The Atlanta Braves won a day, but I'm going to take you back in time. I'm going to talk about the Atlanta Black Crackers. Uh, this is an article that was written by Leslie Hefey, Hefey, I believe, H-E-A-P-H-Y. And let me also give my disclaimer because what I plan to do in the near future is get in contact with somebody at the Negro League Baseball Museum, I believe, in Kansas City. And at some point, one of these days get somebody on my podcast for an interview so stay tuned for that coming up in the near future and this article is also published in the national pastime baseball in the peach state atlanta 2010 and it starts out the braves dominated their division during the 1990s but they're only a small part of atlanta's long story baseball history during the days of segregation the Atlanta Black Crackers made it to the big time in the Negro Leagues between 1919 and 1949 Atlanta's baseball history is dominated by names such as Hank Aaron, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, Dale Murphy, and Chipper Jones the Braves also dominate their division in the 1990s, but that is only a small part of Atlanta's storied baseball history. Anyone can look up the history of the Braves and their players to learn more. A lesser known part of the diamond tale goes back to the days when America was segregated. Atlanta had a significant black population who had to entertain themselves separately in part due to the pervasive Jim Crow laws, black baseball in Atlanta flourished on the sandlots and local diamonds. Only one local team really made it to the big time, the Atlanta Black Crackers, who played in the city off who played in the city off and on from nineteen nineteen to nineteen forty nine. The Black Crackers took their name from the White Atlanta Crackers a squad, the White Atlanta Crackers squad, hoping to benefit from their popularity and name recognition. This part of the story of Atlanta's baseball needs to be taken out of the shadows and added to the city's story. Ponce de Leon Park, home of the Atlanta Crackers, became home to another team shortly after the 1919 season began. The Atlanta Cubs, the predecessor to the Black Crackers. That team consisted of Atlanta players and college athletes brought together by a group of local businessmen. Atlanta Constitution 14, September 1918. Atlanta Crackers general manager Frank Reynolds realized that he could lease the ballpark to the Black Ball Club when the Crackers went on the road and thereby increased the Crackers' profits. The Cubs were a hard-hitting team that got off to an immediately strong start against a variety of opponents. While playing a series in Birmingham, the Cubs so impressed area fans that they came back to Atlanta with a new name, the Atlanta Black Crackers. By the end of the summer season, the Black Crackers had played all over the South and had beaten teams from New Orleans to Florida and many places in between. Insurance man W.J. Bill Shaw took over the Black Crackers in 1920 for the second season. Shaw moved to Atlanta from Brunswick, Georgia and added to his insurance work a social club 
that held dances in the rooftop garden of the Odd Fellows Building and the Auditorium on Auburn Avenue. This avenue was the heart and soul of the African-American community in Atlanta. More financial institutions, professionals, educators, entertainers, and politicians were on this one, one mile of street than any other African-American street in the South. The social club's profit helped finance the ball club, and a number of the players played in the club's orchestra. Shaw helped the Crackers line up games to play at Morris Brown University Field and at Ponce de Leon Park. Many of the early ball players joined the club from the local colleges, including Morris Brown and Morehouse. He ran the team on a shoestring budget with 12 players and hand-me-down equipment and uniforms from the White Crackers team. When the Black Crackers played at Ponce de Leon Park, they attracted good crowds, including a sizable number of white fans. When the Black Crackers played, fans could sit anywhere in the park, but when the White Crackers played, the seating was segregated. Black fans sat in the bleachers in the left field, an area they called Buzzard's Roost, according to former player Gabby Kemp. Even with good fan support, the Black Crackers struggled because they could not afford to travel north to play the major Negro League teams. And those teams did not regularly include a swing through the South in their season schedule. As a result, the Black Crackers played all but one season outside the major league, the major Negro Leagues and spent much of their time playing traveling to wherever a paying gig could be found. Atlanta sports writer Rick Roberts described the importance of the Black Crackers to the local community, saying, Baseball was an outlet. To sit where the fight sat, it was a moment to ex- of escape. Blacks have always loved baseball, and it gave them a chance to look at their heroes. When the Negro Southern League in L- NSL formed in 1920, the Black Crackers became members paying the $200 franchise fee and hoping for a successful first season. Unfortunately, the club struggled, and by August, their record only stood at 39-37. and 37. While not a success on the field, the Black Crackers proved that a team could survive in Atlanta. They returned for another year, opening the 1921 season in early April but they win against the Federal Prison Indians. They also ended their season by defeating the Federal Prison Indians. Vic Preacher Davis struck out 16 for the winners, although they spent much of the season on the road where they made better money due to larger crowds and not having to pay to lease ballparks. Their financial struggles caused the team to dissolve before the end of the season. The Black Crackers did not return to league play until 1925 because the college players lost their eligibility if they played for money. Thus, the club could not find enough good players to fill the team, and without a strong team, they cannot afford the rental fees for a part. New money and organization came to the team in 1925 in the form businessman H.J. Peak and George Strickland. The team still spent a lot more time on the road because Atlanta's blue laws meant that Sunday baseball had to be played in other towns. Due to the Black Crackers' long absence from home, little about them can be found in the papers and fans found it difficult to follow the team's progress. The weekly Atlanta Daily World did not start coverage until 1928 and did not become a daily until 1932. The Atlanta Constitution gave only sporadic coverage. The club disappeared again before the end of the 1925 season. Peak brought the club back in 1926 with one major change. No more traveling by rail, which was expensive. Instead, the team rode in automobiles and saved money by driving themselves. Even this cost-saving measure did not help. 
and the Black Crackers went bankrupt before the before the end of the 1926 season. The Black Crackers returned to play in the NSL in 1927, opening the season with a loss and then defeating Chattanooga 7-4. The club knocked out 11 hits in their win. By midseason, the Black Crackers was back to traveling and playing local teams and still not garnering much attention in the newspapers. From 1928 to 1931, Atlanta had no league black team, but there were a number of local sandlot and semi-pro clubs that kept black baseball alive. The Atlanta Gray Sox made a short-lived league attempt in 1928, but they only played a few games before financial troubles closed them down. H.J.P. tried again in 1930 to revive baseball with a team called the Black Panthers, but most players were content playing in a local city league. Panthers managed to survive through the beginning of the 1931 season before the worsening depression led to them shutting down. They might have delayed their demise somewhat by being the first black team in the city to play night games at Ponce de Leon Park, which meant that fans could come out, could come after work to see the Panthers play. Even with the history of struggles, Atlanta's black baseball teams. The NSL granted the city another franchise in 1932. The new club got off to a rough start and never recovered, forcing the league to abandon the team in July. For example, they lost 11-1 to a rival club, the Montgomery Gray Sox. Most of the players continued to play in the city league, which in 1933 was flourishing, led by the East City Blues, and their first and their star first baseman, Red Moore. In 1939, the NSL met in Memphis to organize for the new season with W.B. Baker representing Atlanta. Baker promoted other sports such as basketball and amateur baseball in the city and wanted to try to revive the Black Crackers. He tried something many of the earlier teams had not. He went outside Atlanta to sign players. He thought some new talent and big names might help draw in the fans. He signed Sammy Thompson from Memphis, Norman Cross from the Chicago American Giants, and George Bennett, a 16-year-old veteran of the Negro League, a 16-year veteran of the Negro Leagues. The home opener looked promising. The Crackers beat the Memphis Red Sox 7-6. Unfortunately, the next few games were losses. As attendance and revenue declined, the Crackers threatened to remove the privilege of Sunday baseball at Ponce de Leon Park. A big victory and larger payday helped end that threat at midseason. The Black Crackers managed to entice local black businesses to help them advertise, and they drew their largest crowd in a winning game against Birmingham, which convinced Cracker President Earl Mann to continue to allow them to lease Ponce de Leon Park. Their success was short-lived, however, and once again, the Black Crackers could not sustain the necessary fan support. By early August, their season was over. Unwilling to give up on the dream of the Black Crackers businessman, Percy Williams vowed to finance the club. After securing interest from other local businessmen, he decided to try again in 1936, but would use local talent and tried to find another park to lease. Unfortunately, this revival hinged entirely on Percy Williams' leadership, and he died unexpectedly on April 26, 1936. With the verbal support of his widow and the, the other owners tried to keep this dream alive. Some early victories behind the strong pitching of Snook Wellmaker kept the team afloat, but then Come Posey signed him to a homestead graze contract in early June, and the baseball club floundered. In 1937, filling station owner John Harden with his wife Billy took over ownership of the ball club, and the team's fortunes improved. Harden, whose gas station was located on Auburn Avenue, got into the 
got into the action due to a local feud over who had the rights to use the Black Cracker name. Other businessmen were interested in owning the rights to the team, but Harden won the day, and by 1938, the team was winning. Instead of traveling in cars to games, the team now had a bus and new uniforms. The roster also jumped to 15 players, and in some years, as high as 17. The Black Crackers played as many of their games as possible in Ponce de Leon Park, setting their schedule around the white Atlanta Crackers. Harden worked with Earl Mann to continue to lease the ballpark and to arrange payments that benefited Harden's team. Their best financial success came. The Kansas City Monarchs came to town. Fans wanted to see this famous Negro League team and its stars. And there is much more to this story, but we have to move on. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to do right here, I'm going to take another break. And when I come back, I will have some more news for you. So stay tuned. This train is just now building up ahead of steam. I'll be right back after this word from my sponsor. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to shift around we're going to look at the AP top 25 question is your team still in or your team out let's take a look at this top 25 number one Clemson coming in at number two Alabama coming in at number three Georgia up one spot coming in at number four down one spot is Florida. Holding steady at number five, Notre Dame. Number six, Ohio State University. Up one spot to number seven, Miami. Big game coming up this week against Clemson. That should tell us a lot about if this Miami team is for real. And do they pose a threat? Up four spots to the number eight spot, University of North Carolina. And they said that, who said that North Carolina only played basketball? Matter of fact, last year they weren't playing too much. Coming in at number nine, up one spot, still have yet to play a game, Penn State University. Up seven spots to the number 10 spot, Oklahoma State. Up four spots and sitting outside top 10 from the AAC. How about those Bearcats from Cincinnati? So, if I was to rank teams in the state of Ohio right now, Cincinnati would be number one. Cleveland Browns, number two. Ohio State, number three. Cincinnati, number four. In that order. Coming in at the 12 spot, up two spots and have yet to play a game, University of Oregon Ducks and their 500 different uniforms. Down six spots, number 13, Auburn. Up seven spots from the number 21 ranking after an impressive showing, number 14, Tennessee. Also up seven spots. Coming in at number 15 with an undefeated record, BYU. Up three spots and have yet to play a game. Number three, up three spots. Number 16 team, Wisconsin. A team that fell down in the rankings but climbed back up three spots. Number 17, LSU. A team that is 4 and 0. Oh and was not ranked last week, but knocked off a ranked opponent. Number 18, SMU, who knocked off Memphis, if I'm correct. Also, a team that wasn't ranked last week, coming in at 2-0, ranked number 19, Virginia Tech. A team that climbed three spots and have yet to play a game, coming in at number 20, the Michigan Wolverines. 
team that has dropped eight spots coming in at one and one, number twenty-one, Texas A&M. A team that's just holding on to their ranking at two and one after losing at home to TCU, number twenty-two ranked Texas. Still undefeated after not being ranked, coming in at number twenty-three. How about those raging Cajuns from the University of Louisiana? And after an impressive showing against OU, after not being ranked last week, coming in at number 24 is those Cyclones from Iowa State. And number 25, having yet to play a game after not being ranked, University of Minnesota Gophers. First team to be receiving votes on the cusp of cracking the top 25 will be Kansas State, and I'm not going to read the rest of that. And this poll here was the Associated Press Top 25. Let's see what the coaches say about that. The top five, you start with Clemson, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Notre Dame. So thus far, they seem to all agree on the top five. Yes. Then coming in 6 through 10, you have Ohio State, Miami, Penn State, North Carolina, Oklahoma State. And this is the coaches' poll. And like they're pretty much in agreement with the Associated Press. Then coming in from 11 through 15, you have Cincinnati, Tennessee, Auburn, Wisconsin, BYU. 16 through 20, you have LSU, Oregon, Virginia Tech, Michigan, Texas A&M. And then rounding it out, 20 through 20, 21 through 25, you have SMU, Texas, University of Louisiana, Iowa State, and just hanging on, here's the difference right here, UCF, University of Central Florida, who took one on the chin at home against Tulsa University. So there you have the top 25 from both the coaches poll and from the Associated Press. Have you heard from uh, Deshaun since the shakeup in Houston yesterday, and are you ready for your name to be kind of floating around with that job over the next uh, few weeks, few months? Uh, I have not heard from Deshaun, and, uh, you know, that's that is not even anything that, that you know, I want to even have to even think about. That's a that's so. It's just you would be the one to ask that question. Uh, all the questions. Hey, you want to ask anything about Miami? Uh, uh, so you just love it when a reporter just have to be the one that asks that question, and then he gets singled out. Just in case you didn't recognize, that was Dabo Sweeney responding to a reporter asking him had he heard from Deshaun Watson in lieu of Bill O'Brien finally getting fired from his role as GM and head coach that's double to me that's double termination because you were the GM and you were the coach let's back up First of all, how did you get GM tag? Who in a matter of fact, I haven't heard what Stephen A. Smith had to say about this, but it said they need to fire everything that Bill O'Brien touched. First of all, who in their right mind would have given him the keys to the Jaguar for him to trade away the Porsche? You basically, once Arizona 
figures it out and gets off of their skid. You basically, when you trade away DeAndre Hopkins, and this is my opinion, you extended Larry Fitzgerald's playing career. And you basically put the Arizona Cardinals in a position to make a playoff run. The fact that they waited four games into the season, all I can say is if I was the team owner, first of all, I'd probably have to fire myself for giving him that much power. But why wasn't this guy gone? And I'm no expert. So those of you who hear this podcast, please feel free to chime in and give me your comments and what your thoughts are. Who? Because had I been, if I'm the team owner, and I get wind that a trade is going down with my star receiver not being here, oh no, first of all, if I don't fire the GM or strip him of his GM title, I'm blocking that trade from happening. Yeah, they, they got a Texans got a few good pieces, okay? They got a few good pieces in return. But look how important receivers are. I mean, Dak Prescott wouldn't be putting up the numbers that he have right now. Granted, he don't have the wins to show for it. But you take away Amari Cooper. You take away C.D. Lamb. You take away Gallup. I'm not for sure that Dallas averages 30-plus points a game and Dak is putting up 400-plus yards a game. I think then you start seeing more Tennessee Titan-style play. A heavy dose of Ezekiel Elliott. So now the question is, who will be the next coach of the Houston Texans? Right now they have Romeo Cornell. That man, he's like a nightmare that won't go away. He's a good guy. He is a nice guy. He's not NFL head coach material. He's coordinator type material. He's more defensive minded. But one thing we do know, Based on that sound clip that we heard, Dabo Sweeney has not heard from Deshaun Watson. And right now, the only thing on his mind is getting ready for Miami. That's the only thing that matters is getting ready for Miami. Reporters. And I'm, I'm pretty sure there might be some listening to this, but sometimes reporters, they ask questions to me. I think you could have saved your breath on that, okay? I, I still go back, and I had some words with a guy that was doing local radio here. Uh, UCF had just completed their season undefeated when their bowl game. Scott Frost was the coach. And the first question that the reporter wanted to ask him, so is it true that this is your last game? I'm from the old adage that there's a time and a place for everything. Why do you feel like you have to be the one to get the story and break the story first? Stop it. You would get your answer whenever the coach decides he wants to give the answer. At that moment, it was about Scott Frost celebrating with his player. Ask him something related to the game, not the future job. Let him get a chance to talk it over with his players what he's going to do before putting it out on national TV. Stop trying to be the first one to get the story. I might ruffle a few feathers there, but you know what? That's just fine. I don't care. (laughs) That's probably what I do. Anyway, 
Let's move right along because I'm pretty sure we have some more news to pass along. As you know, this is a quirky football season. There are there have been players that have opted out, opted back in. Well, after long fall game, North Dakota State QB Trey Lance elects to skip spring season and enter the NFL draft. So who is Trey Lance? Well, let's get to find out. North Dakota State quarterback Trey Lance, a projected first-round pick in next year's NFL draft, will forego his final two-plus seasons and enter the draft. The Bison will play a spring season in 2021, but Lance will instead prepare for the draft at that time. He ran for two touchdowns and threw for two more in a 39-28 victory over Central Arkansas on Saturday, the Bison's only scheduled game this fall. Lance, who couldn't be reached for comment by ESPN, posted his decision on social media. In his first season as a starter at North Dakota State in 2019, Lance didn't throw an interception in 287 attempts, setting the NCAA All-Division record for passing attempts in a season without an interception. He completed 66.9% of his passes for 2,786 yards and 28 touchdowns while running 169 times for 1,100 yards and 14 scores. He led the FCS in passing efficiency, 180.6, and established single-season school records for passing efficiency and total offense, 3,886 yards. He was named the most outstanding player in North Dakota State's 28-20 victory against James Madison in the FCS National Championship, which helped the Bison achieve the first 16-0 season in college football since 19 since 1894 he won the walker payton award as the top offensive player in the fcs and the jerry rice award as the top freshman becoming the first player to win both honors lance a draft eligible sophomore is projected as the third best quarterback available for the 2021 draft behind clemson's trevor lawrence and ohio state's Justin Fields, according to ESPN's Mel Kiper Jr. and Tom McShay. Both analysts project Lance among the top 10 picks overall. Lance went 17-0 in parts of three seasons at North Dakota State. Lance recently told ESPN that he wasn't sure how his limited starting experience in college would affect his draft status. It's all about what other people think, Lance said. It's not really about what I think. I've done everything I can to play as many games as possible. If that was my decision at the end of the fall, I've played as many games as I possibly can. I'm loving it here in North Dakota State, so we'll see what happens. So there you have who Lance Trey is, so to speak. So I am going to wrap this up when I come back after this word from my sponsors. So stay tuned. A Train Sports Talk Podcast. Put the wrap on this after this word from my sponsor. So I'm getting ready to close this out and I'm going to look at the NFC East. It's a train wreck. NFC East is 3, 12, and 1. Here is the big issue and a fix for each team. The NFC East is the NFC least. It's not just bad. It's worse than last season. The Dallas Cowboys can't stop a nosebleed. New York Giants can't reach the end zone. The Philadelphia Eagles barely have a recognizable offensive lineman or wide receiver. And the Washington football team doesn't even have a real nickname. Their combined records, 3-12-1. No wonder the leader of the division, Philadelphia, has one win to four weeks. The last time after week four, a first place team in any division had one or few wins was 2005 NFC North. But the Eagles do have a tie. 
only in the NFC East is a tie as good as a win. NFC East reporters Todd Archer, Cowboys, Tim McManus, Eagles, Jordan Rand, Giants, and John Kane watched and break down the biggest issue facing each team and how it can be fixed. The Cowboys 1-3. The biggest concern for the Cowboys is an easy answer. It's defense. When you have allowed 146 points in four games, the most in franchise history to start a season, how could it not be the answer? The Cowboys do not get consistent pressure. They struggle to get off the blocks. They have difficulty covering in the secondary. They have not tackled well. That adds up to what looks like the worst defense in team history statistically. Cowboys defensive coordinator Mike Nolan has brought a multifaceted scheme to a unit that played mostly one coverage in 2019. It is not working. But simplifying things is not the answer for Coach Mike McCartney either. How the Cowboys can fix their issue? Play complementary football. The offense cannot turn the ball over. It must protect the defense. My opinion, start using or utilizing the ground game. If Zeke ain't working, put in Tony Pollard. Eat up clock. Stop putting them, well, I guess the reason they got to throw the ball so much is because they're, they usually find themselves behind the eight ball. But try to find a way to start that game off fast. Get in the end zone first. Establish a lead, then establish clock. New York Giants are 0-4. The biggest concern for the Giants is they can't score points. The Giants are averaging 11.8 points a game. Is that even possible in today's NFL? It starts with their inability to make big plays. Without running backs like Quan Barkley, they don't seem to have any playmakers who truly scare the opposition. That makes life difficult for quarterback Daniel Jones and company, who have gone consecutive games without scoring a touchdown and are last in the league in red zone production, 20%. Giants offense coordinator Jason Garrett better come up with something fast before this gets really ugly. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Clap on, clap off. <laughs> how Giants can fix their issues? Get the ball to tight end Evan Ingram. He's the most explosive weapon they've got. Philadelphia Eagles, 1-2-1. and one. Biggest concern for the Eagles is they're decimated by injuries on offense. Quarterback Carson Wentz is operating without four of his top five receivers and tight end Dallas Goats. Only two members of the original offensive line are playing now, and one of them, right tackle Lane Johnson, is hobbled by lingering ankle issue that requires surgery before the start of the season. Unsurprisingly, the Eagles rank 26th in points per game, 21. Every drive feels like a gigantic test of will. The good news is, Wentz shows signs he's coming out of his funk Sunday night against the San Francisco 49ers. How Eagles can fix their issue? Keep rolling Wentz out, allow him to create, or alternately hire Mr. Miyagi as a medical consultant. And finally, the Washington football team. Heard of the ride in town with a horse with no name? Rolled into a game with a football team with no name. The biggest concern for Washington is Dwayne Haskins' inexperience and in overall youth on offense. Haskins ranks last in NFL in total QBR at 30.7 and next to last in completion percentage for throws six air yards or longer. So there isn't much attacking down the field. He's enduring the growing pains that come with youth. Haskins has started 11 games with a 2-9 record. Washington wants him to handle situations better. The team knew his development would take time. The rest of the offense lacks a lot of pop. Aside from re receiver Terry McLaurin and developing running back Antonio Gibson, they need more, including a consistent ground game. How Washington can fix its issue? Patience, or if Haskins doesn't improve, a quarterback change. There you have it. Another edition of A Train Sports Talk Podcast. Hope you have enjoyed it. Check out my sponsors if you're in the Kansas City area. Tell Bridget I sent you. Tell I said hi. But go check her out. Also, if you are a small business owner or a black business owner, and if you want to 
support this podcast on a monthly basis, starting out at 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month, just check out my link, and I'll be glad to have you on board. You send me a script, and I will insert it and highlight your business. Until next time, this is A-Train Sports Talk. Hope you enjoyed the ride. Talk to you later. Have a blessed day.